love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you. Welcome to Love Savers Radio, ministering the blessings of covenant. This is Walter and Sandy Fox from Love Savers Ministry, called by God to minister the blessings of the marriage covenant by enriching, encouraging, strengthening, and praying for the healing of marriages, especially marriages in crisis. Hi, Love Savers listeners. This is Keith Davis, the proprietor of the Golden Pear Cafes. As I enter my 30th year of marriage, I encourage you to seek the Lord's guidance and wisdom for your marriage, for He is the one who can help you day by day in building a lifetime of peace, joy, fond memories, and a beautiful family. When Anne walked into the Golden Pear to apply for a job as Golden Pear's first pastry chef, I had no idea that God had brought my future wife and mother of our three children literally to my front door. But that is exactly what he did. And although we have had our challenges and ups and downs, God has richly blessed our marriage and he gets the glory for our 30 years together. So I encourage you to seek God's will and use Love Savers as a resource to improve and bless your marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Mark chapter 10, verse 9. The first step towards a healthy marriage is having our hearts right with God, to be obedient to God's word so we have a right relationship with him. It comes down to one thing, the cross. That's the secret weapon to defeating sin and conflict in our marriages and being obedient to the word of God. Having an attitude of humility and repentance before the Lord is key to having a blessed marriage. Pastor Leo Fenton's teaches on the power of the eternal cross and the personal cross. It will bless your marriage and prepare you to fulfill God's eternal purpose for your lives. As stated in the book of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.3. Let's listen. So somewhere in the salvation process, God has to bring us to a place where we can do his will and bring joy to his heart. So because that was, that was a requirement in heaven to do the will of God, he set in heaven an eternal cross. This cross is the principle upon which heaven operates. Everybody in heaven must take up their cross daily and follow God. Because everyone in heaven must do the will of God. Now this eternal cross was working when Jesus, the Word of God, the living and abiding Word of God, was in heaven with God. 
In Philippians 2, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped for, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 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 and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in heaven, Jesus took up the eternal cross. He did the will of the Father. He was equal with God. But he thought that was not something that he had to insist upon and grasp for. So he humbled himself to become a man. Then as a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. Not just any kind of a death, but he humbled himself even to death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him. So in the eternal plan of God, everybody has to do the will of God and take up the eternal cross in heaven. That's not an option. Because that's the principle upon which heaven operates. And because of that, God set two trees in the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you may eat from all the trees of the garden, for all the trees are good for food. They are to be desired. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that. For in a day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. So these trees were set in the garden and man was given a commandment. You can eat from all the trees. He wasn't hungry. He didn't have to eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil in order to survive. He had many, many trees he could eat from. But he chose to eat from the tree that God said, don't eat from. And so man refused to take up the eternal cross. And man fell from the purpose of God. So now instead of man being in the, in the center of God's purpose, man fell by his disobedience. He fell from the purpose of God. The Bible says that he fell into sin. That he was alienated from God. He was a stranger to the covenant of God. He was dead in his trespasses and sins, and he was without hope in this world. There was no way that man could get back to the purpose of God. He had fallen, and there was no sacrifice sufficient to bring him back up to the purpose of God. And so God, in his great love and his great mercy, sent Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh. The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, through Calvary, through this cross, man now has an opportunity to get back up into the purpose of God. This is what we call the work of the cross. Or this is everything that Christ has provided for man through the cross of Calvary. And it's many, many things. 
much, much more than just forgiveness of sins. When we look at the Passover lamb, we'll see that not only did they have to put the blood upon the lintel and the doorpost, but they also had to eat the lamb. And they had to eat it all. They had to eat it standing up. They had to eat it with their loins girt about. They had to eat it with their sandals on their feet. They had to eat it with their staff in their hand. They had to eat it in haste because, he said, it is the Lord's Passover. And they had to eat it all. They had to eat the head. They had to eat the body. They had to eat the entrail. And they had to eat the feet. And he said, whatever part you cannot eat, you must put in the fire and burn up. Which means that whatever part of the Passover lamb you don't consume, it'll be lost to you forever. Because in the fire it burned up. Now this Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 he says, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the leavened bread of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Christ is our Passover. It's not enough just to use his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to also eat his flesh and drink his blood. For in John 6 he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. For my body is true food and my blood is true drink. So in John 6 we see the, the rest of what salvation is. The rest of what Calvary has provided for us. But within Calvary there are tremendous provisions that we don't know anything about hardly. So this is all what we call the work of the cross. Everything that had been provided for man through the cross of Jesus Christ. In, the, in this, man can do nothing for himself. And so everything here has to be done for man. Man can't make himself righteous. He can't atone for his sin. There's nothing he can do to participate in this salvation process. Because salvation is a process. It's not just, I got saved 20 years ago and I've been sitting in a pew ever since. It's not that. Salvation is a process where God brings us from where we are to where he wants us. If we yield ourselves daily to him to take up the cross and follow him, he will do that work. So through the cross of Calvary, man is declared righteous. Or he's imputed righteousness. Even though he's not righteous, God declares him to be righteous through faith. Until God has a chance to make him righteous. This is what we call justification. Or just as if I had never sinned. This is what some people call regeneration. Regeneration means to return to Genesis. To turn, return to the beginning, or a new genesis. So through the cross of Calvary, God brings us back to a new genesis, a new beginning. And through the work of the cross here, God has provided various experiences in order to redeem us. Or in order to uh, bring us back to his eternal purpose. So first he says, repent and be baptized. Or we receive Jesus Christ into our life and his life comes into our life, we say we are born again. But the Bible says you must be born again in order to see the kingdom. 
You have to be born of the water and of the spirit in order to enter into the kingdom in John 3, 3 and John 3, 5. So this is a process now through, through uh, repentance, through faith, through water baptism, uh, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through these various foundational experiences, like he says in Hebrews 6, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or faith toward God or the doctrine of baptisms or the laying on of hands or the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. Let us go on to perfection and this we shall do if God permits. So this is all provided for us because none of this man can do for himself. Now we get back up to here where we're going to enter in now again into God's eternal purpose and we find this eternal cross waiting for us there. Jesus said, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In Luke 7, he says, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So this eternal cross has to come back into each of our lives if you're going to fulfill the purpose of God. Now, if you're just preaching that we have escaped from hell, this will solve man's problem. See, Calvary solves man's problem. But where are we going to solve God's problem? Where are we going to bring joy to God's heart and fulfill the desire of his heart, which he had before the foundation of the world? Not down here. This is the first step. This is where we begin. So this solves man's problem of sin. But it doesn't solve God's problem. For that reason, there's a whole process that God brings us through to bring us back up into his eternal purpose. And that cross is waiting for us there. So there's many, many hard scriptures dealing with that eternal cross. In Luke 14, he says, Unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother, wife, farms, homes, lands, and your own life also, you can't be my disciple. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. So this cross is something that is inherent within the purpose of God. Because there's an eternal cross in the purpose of God. And so God brings that cross into our life there. And this is what we call walking in the way of the cross. And in the walking in the way of the cross, it's absolutely necessary that everybody do the whole will of God. This is not just for the pastors. This is for everybody who is going to fulfill the purpose of God. Everybody has to do the will of God. In Matthew 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In 1 John he says, For the world is passing away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. So it is absolutely essential that everybody do the will of God. Now, these two trees are still waiting for us. When we get back in do it to do the will of God, are we going to do it through the knowledge of good and evil? Or are we going to do the will of God through the tree of life? See, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. 
So this tree is also waiting for us in Revelation 22. This is called the tree of life. And it's a river flows out by the tree of life. The tree on each side of the river. The river flows in the throne of God. Comes right out through where the tree of life is. So this is an eternal thing. The tree of life is eternal. You find it in the, in the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 22. Now, the problem is trying to do the will of God through knowledge. Adam thought he could do the will of God just by learning, just by knowing. But there's a lot more to doing the will of God than knowing. Because the will of God has to come out of the life which God has put in us. And this life, he says, is in Jesus Christ. So when we receive Jesus Christ into our life, we receive his life. And we are born again, or our spirit comes alive. God said that in a day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. Well, he ate and he didn't die, did he? See, we assume that he's going to cough three times and fall over dead. But he didn't. But did he die? Yes, he died. He didn't die in his body. He didn't die in his soul. But he died in his spirit. So every man who is not redeemed by the blood of Jesus is dead in his trespasses and sins. He's dead in his spirit. So when the Spirit of Christ comes into us, our spirit comes alive and we're born again. In 1 Peter 1, he says, For we are born again, not of seed or of sperma, where it is, not of sperma, which is perishable, but imperishable, by the living and the abiding Word of God. So we're born again when the living and abiding Word of God comes into us. His name is Jesus. Now, in the way of the cross, God has to do something in us. The work of the cross, God did something for us. Here, he begins to do something in us to change us from what we are to what we must be in order to fulfill the purpose of God. So, in Colossians 1.28, Paul says, I'm warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that I might present every man perfect in Christ. And to this I labor according to power that works in me. So once we get people up here to where they're willing to do the will of God, God begins to work in them. Paul says that God is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God has to work in us to change us. It's not enough just to be forgiven or say, well, thank God I'm justified. I have been made righteous through faith. That's true. But now God wants to make us experientially righteous. He wants to do something in our life to change us from what we are. And so the whole gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about change. In the gospel of the kingdom, God is concerned about how you give, how you treat your brother, how you pray, where you pray. If you go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you see that God is concerned about all the practical things of the Christian life. And the reason is because of the kingdom of God. In order to prepare us for the kingdom of God, God wants to work all these things into our life. So this is what God does in us. And this is what we call sanctification. 
Or this is where God begins to set us apart unto himself. Or to change our character to be like his character. When we give ourselves to God in total consecration, or we, we say, Lord, I'm yours. Here, take me. Do whatever you want to do. We sanctify ourselves unto God. Then God takes us and sanctifies us unto his eternal purpose. Now here, people say, but I was sanctified from hell. That's true. You're sanctified from. Now we have to be sanctified unto. So we give ourselves to God and sanctify ourselves or set ourselves apart wholly to God. Then God takes us and begins to work in us to sanctify us unto his eternal purpose. So this is how God begins to work in us. Now man fell through disobedience, but he has to come back through obedience. The Bible says that Jesus saves all those who obey him. You have to obey the Lord to be saved here. The thief on the cross didn't have any obedience. But we're not talking about that now. We're talking about fulfilling God's eternal purpose. And that requires obedience to the Lord. <clears throat> now the reason is that because of God's kingdom or because of this administration or this government suitable to the fullness of times which is the whole realm of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God because of that realm and because of the demands of the kingdom. See, we say salvation is free. Just believe. Doesn't cost you anything. Just believe. You exercise faith, your sins are forgiven. Thank God for it. We all needed it. But now, the Bible says, we must do the will of God in order to participate in the kingdom of God. So when we're preaching the gospel of the kingdom... We're preaching the, the government of God, the experiential government of God. See, there's a throne of God in heaven. Everybody knows about the throne in heaven. But God wants to rule in our life. He wants to rule right here in our hearts. And he sets his throne up internally, subjectively within us. And this is where he begins to rule individually over us. In the millennial kingdom, he's going to rule on earth. And it's going to be a real government over a real people on a real earth. But when that earth is passed away, then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem in which righteousness dwells. It's not imputed righteousness. It's experiential righteousness. In Revelation 19, where he said... Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteousnesses or the experiential righteousness or the righteous acts of the saints. That's how God is preparing a bride for Jesus. In the eternal kingdom, God is a father. And he wants myriads and myriads and myriads of children. And as a father, he wants a wife for his son. But she has to be full grown, like him in every aspect. She has to be holy and blameless. She has to come to his perfection. And that's what the New Jerusalem is about. 
is about the bride of Christ coming to that perfection. So because of the kingdom of God, God has to transform us. He has to change us. And he's concerned about every little thing in our life. He says of the kingdom, give to everybody who asks. And don't withhold from him who wants to borrow. Pray for him who mistreats you. Do good to him who who does evil to you. So in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he lays out all these impossible demands upon man. Which man cannot meet. And natural man never will meet. But these demands are not made of the natural man. These demands are made of the spiritual man in which God builds up through faith. In the working of God, he builds the spirit man up until the spirit man is able to put aside all those things. So in the purpose of God, God is going to do something through man. In Psalm 80, he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou hast taken notice of him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than God, but thou hast crowned him with glory and majesty, and given him dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and the sheep and the oxen and everything that is upon the earth. In Hebrews 2, when he quotes that, he says, not only has he given us uh, dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and the oxen, but over all the works of God's hands. So in eternity future, in the eternal kingdom of God, God is going to do something through us. And we summarize that by saying that God is going to rule through man over all the works of his hands. Now in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we see the first Adam and the first Eve. And to the first Adam and the first Eve, God made commandments about multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and to rule over it for God. They couldn't rule over it for themselves because they weren't given dominion over themselves. They were given dominion over the earth, but they were not given dominion over themselves. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God sets the picture, the pattern of what he's going to work out in eternity. So in Revelation 21 and 22, we see everything coming to the eternal plan of God. And in Genesis 1 and 2, he had a first Adam and a first Eve. Now, in the New Testament, he has a last Adam, the second man. He had the first man, now he had a second man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had the first Adam, Then he has the last Adam, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But in God's eternal plan, he had an Eve. And in in his eternal plan in New Jerusalem, he has an Eve. And that Eve is the New Jerusalem. That's the bride of Christ. He said, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He took him to great and high mountain and showed him the, the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. So the New Jerusalem is the bride. That's the saints of God who come to that clarity and perfection, purity, crystal clear. All the opaqueness have been gone out of their life. 
So because of God's plan and purpose, he wants to do something through us for eternity. Now, he already has his man. His name is Jesus. He has the perfected man. Now he's looking for a perfected bride for Jesus. He's looking for the last Eve. In order to bring us to that point, he has to work in us. He has to change us. We have to grow. We have to grow up all things into Christ, who is the head. We have to be conformed to his image. Now, none of us know how to do that. So, God works in us. He has sent the Holy Spirit to fill us and to lead us and to guide us. He sent the Holy Spirit to change us from what we are to what we ought to be. First Thessalonians says, For God has chosen you for salvation from the beginning through sanctification of the Spirit and faith in the truth. So the Holy Spirit comes to sanctify us unto God's eternal purpose or to keep, keep changing us until we fit into that city of God. Because in eternity future, God is going to do something through the perfected man and the perfected wife. 